Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Imagine you're in the worst financial crisis in pretty much recorded history and you're about to sell your house and your investment property to buy two stocks. That's exactly what guest number one on the Countdown series did. Welcome to The Countdown on the Australian Investors Podcast. For 15 episodes, Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday in January 2024, we'll count down to the most impactful interviews ever conducted on the Australian Investors Podcast. These interviews were selected by you, our most loyal listeners of the Wednesday and Saturday episodes of the podcast, going all the way back to 2017. We'll be back with our usual episodes next month, so stay tuned. The Countdown is designed to help you be a better investor of your time and money by featuring episodes with past and present industry leaders. Think of this as if I could only pick 15 interviews for all investors to listen to. These would be them. You can let me and the community know what you think about each episode in The Countdown on X, where I'll be tweeting about all episodes as they are published during the lockdown. For episode 15 in the countdown, our very first episode, we have Luke Trickett. Luke is the founder and investor behind Blue Stamp Company, a business that has a very low profile based up the East Coast in Australia. There are so many takeaways from this wonderful episode with Luke, but the one that probably catches me the most is how he founded his business on three principles. Number one, patience, allowing you to leave your capital invested for many years. Number two, performance. For example, given his swimming background, he focuses on effectively staying in his lane and choosing to benchmark himself against an absolute benchmark, not something like, I'm going to outperform the ASX 200. And number three, alignment. Luke's letters are some of the most well-written and profound in the Australian investment landscape. You can visit Luke's website to learn more about him and the way that he invests. 
but this interview covers a lot of what can be found on his website. So I encourage you to go and check that out if you are interested in hearing more from Luke Trickett. This episode was first published on the 28th of October, 2020, and features Luke Trickett, coming in at number 15 in our countdown. I hope you enjoy it. Luke, thanks for taking the time out today to join me for this interview. No problem. Uh, we're just talking off air. This is probably the first longer form um, investor-related interview you've done in quite a while. And I should give a shout out to Tony Hansen who made the connection. Um, Tony's one of those people that I believe doesn't listen to too many podcasts, but he said to me, if you can get Luke on the show, I'll listen. So he made the intro and um, I, I'm guessing that he's quite a big fan of yours. So having done some research, I can certainly see what Tony uh, likes and, and and just, I guess it's just part of your decision-making process, the way you set up the fund and kind of what you stand for. This conversation will probably be as much about investing as it will be about life and just thinking in general. But what I like to do, Luke, is I like to go back to the younger you and just kind of set the scene for our listeners. Um, we're looking for, I guess, any common threads of entrepreneurship or or business or just life lessons early on. So um, maybe if you can just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, the younger you, any mentors, and um, I guess how those maybe have shaped you and, and your study and your sporting career and things like that. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, I will try to remember some of those things. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, first of all, um, Tony, let me just say, Tony always speaks um, uh, very highly of, of those around him. And I'm fortunate to know Tony. Um, he speaks too kindly of me, um, but it's great to have made this intro and to be able to chat to you. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess trying to maybe address your question, um, a younger me. Um, I guess, yeah, like, don't know really why, but um, I've always kind of been fascinated by money. Um, um, it kind of now, yeah, looking back at, at, at when I was younger, um, and I, I still do have, have these collections, you know, I have, um, I used to collect coins and stamps and phone cards. Um, but really coins and stamps was the main thing when I was younger. Um, actually remember, I don't, yeah, just kind of, um, uh, like in our backyard being able to, um, there was, yeah, I had this kind of, um, um, you could then there must have there must have been like ages ago there must have been something something our our property must have been on some sort of marketplace or something because there's like you could like literally dig in the ground and if you dig long enough um and deep enough you'd kind of just dig up these old coins like you know these kind of um, <laughs> um worthless pennies but you know i was kind of really there's this kind of there's particular year of penny that that is um really valuable i think it's a 19 31 off the top of my head really really valuable i was just always trying to find one of these 1930 pennies but i never did um <laughs> but yeah it's it was this idea of um yeah i just just had this um um interest in in kind of trying to collect things um and hold on to them and you know i guess yeah i guess collect and this idea of um 
um, building up collections and storing value over time. And yeah, it's it's probably something that that now only kind of has a bit more relevance to to what I'm doing. Um, but I guess it did it did kind of come out in in different ways as I was growing up. Um, you know, I remember uh, with my mate, we'd go to he lived near a golf course that the golf course bordered um, like some bushland. And so what we'd do, like on school holidays, we would just um, walk up and down like this thick bush, digging out all of these golf balls that have been, you know, hooked into the into the rough. And then we kind of clean them up and try to sell them to, back to the clubhouse. Um, <laughs> lots of different things like that. I remember um, one of my stranger ones, I... Um, I I ordered the number plates shortly after you got the, the personalized number plates came out. I ordered the number plates USD because I thought, you know, that's the biggest financial market in the world, the foreign exchange market, the the greenbacks, the the biggest currency. I thought for sure there'd be some person <laughs> out there that's made some money on USD that would want to spend. I think I advertised this is back when the trading post was around too. Advertised it for twenty grand. Um, and I hadn't spent, you know, like it was nice too, because you could like just order the number plates. You didn't even have to pay for them or pick them up. They were just sitting at the registry for me. And I could then go and advertise for to sell the number plates, even though I hadn't paid anything for them. Mm. Um, and I got one call. I didn't, I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't kind of consummate this the sale. I'm a terrible salesman. Um <laughs> and 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 fortunately, I, I didn't actually get to sell them, so I just obviously surrendered them. Uh, <laughs> lots of different kind of things like that, I guess, off the top of my head um, that I've kind of done when I was younger. But then, obviously, getting older and you know going through school and university, um, stocks kind of became interesting to me, and and that's kind of what prompted me to study uh, finance and economics at uni. Um, yeah, and I guess from there it it kind of um, gave me something a little bit more um, formal from an education sense to to apply um, this strange interest I had towards yeah, like trying to um, generate um, kind of wealth over time. Mm. Was there anyone um, in your family or friendship group that was a business person or influenced you in any way? Um, well, you know, my father was definitely a business man, but he was a sales person. So I found, I found, and, and he, he would come home and he'd just talk about like his job, like incessantly, which kind of drove me mad, but, um, it definitely did open up this world of like, oh, like, I wonder what all these kind of deals are about, um, but it probably wasn't, to be honest, it was probably more uh, my background in sport that was a, a greater mentor, so to speak, to it. So like kind of this idea of um, accruing value was rightly or wrongly just there, um, independent of, of what my dad was saying. And it wasn't like, and, and I found like probably now looking back, it was like, so I used to swim competitively um, and it was through that process that I think a lot of things were able to be um, formed up in a, 
in a way that gave me structure going forward. So like with swimming, it's, I think it's, it's a wonderful sport because, um, and it speaks to investing a lot, I, I feel, because um, it's something where you need to do a lot of work um, early on. You need to commit to it um, and then do a lot of work to, to build up your kind of strength, skills, ability, um, and then you kind of maybe get one shot at, at delivering on it. Um, and, you know, whether you deliver the performance or not kind of comes down to the, the individual rather, and, it, and it's very objective whether you deliver the performance or not. Like it's like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, completely time-based quantitative. There's, there's no subjectivity around the judge's score or anything. It's, it's really about have you done the work? And can you get up and back faster than anyone else? So it comes down to whether you're prepared to do the work and how you execute your race. Um, and yeah, I really like that that simplicity, that objectivity of swimming. Um, and then you know what's required of the individual to 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 get the goal that they want at the end. It's you know you have to have a framework. You have to follow the framework. Um, and yeah, I, I feel a, a lot of those aspects are consistent with investing. Mm. And now that you say it, I think so too. We've had um, some people that have played professional sport um, on the on the show before. Um, so, were you swimming professionally before you studied at uni? Um, yeah, so swimming is one of those kind of sports you start fairly young. Um, and you would you would typically have to commit to it fairly young to be able to compete at the high level because um, yeah the 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 age of kind of the the best age for a swimmer is between probably eighteen and twenty five, mm. um, so you kind of have to be have you have had to have done years and years of work before you hit you know kind of eighteen so um, uh, yeah I mean I guess. Professionally, there's probably not many people that swim professionally because there's not much money in the sport. Um, so I, I was I was swimming at at an elite level from probably 19, I think, mm-hmm. my, my later latter part of uni, um, and yeah, and then swimming through to um, when I was about 25, 26. Yeah, right. And so, so you kind of. You, Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah. So there was a period there where it was where I was swimming um, at that level. I was studying at uni, and I was also working. So it was it was that was probably for about um, one year. Yeah, so, right. I was going to say because it sounds like you had to do them both, like investing and, and learning and studying, while also um, swimming and, and getting better in that respect. Um, so maybe it's a bit maybe you being a bit modest but i feel like you were quite good at swimming too well i mean it's relative right um um i guess i was good compared to the general public but um well it's it's quite humorous and it's a story that's at my expense but um (laughs) um when I'm, my wife and I, my wife um, lived when we made our first um, junior team, Australian junior team, that was in 2002 at the Oceania Championships. Um, and I swam quite well at the meet. Um, 
uh, broke some records and won some races and ended up getting swimmer of the meet. And she, I mean, she, she saw okay. I think she got kind of third in the hundred freestyle. Um, and, and, you know, she kind of caught my attention too at the time and which, which, you know, no doubt helped that I was um, swimmer of the meet. Well, I, the fact that I caught, I didn't catch her attention um, was disappointing. And I thought the fact that swimmer of the meet might help, but um, it didn't. It took some, a little bit, a little bit more work on my behalf. Um, but it was probably, I think, 18 months later after that meet, she broke the world record in the 100 meters freestyle. So it was this kind of experience where I was maybe, you know, kind of doing quite well. Mm. And then 18 months later, she was just like on an, a completely different um, plane. And, um, you know, that was interesting. That was um t- challenging to be honest because we were both kind of pursuing our swimming careers and all of a sudden she was like not just the best in the world the best that the world had ever seen mm. um and yeah it was it was kind of tough because um you know now she was doing things that i dreamt of um and you kind of have to go back into this role of not only trying to pursue your own swimming career and and getting the results that you want to get, but you also kind of then have to play this real supporting role to, you know, because then like she was off to the Athens Olympics at that point in time. I didn't, I didn't make the, the um, Olympic team, which was, you know, that's tough. Um, but then you have to go straight into the role of, like supporting her and making sure that you know together that we can try to get the best result at the olympics which is a huge you know a huge opportunity so um yeah it was it was tough um in a way to kind of go through that whole process of of um you know trying to trying to progress your swimming and then also being very much kind of um mm-hmm. in a boarding role so um yeah it's one of those things it's great really great kind of learning that as a younger person it gives you a lot of humility um re- being able to reflect on your own actions understanding you know why you do things or you know ref- <laughs> making sure you if you do something that's probably not not the most conducive to one you know functional outcomes to try to reflect on that as early as possible. So you don't just end up with dysfunctional patterns of behavior that, you know, result in you not doing what you could otherwise do. Mm. So do you, did you see that in other swimmers? Um, did I see that behavior in other swimmers? Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, probably. Um, well, oh. I don't know. I saw it in myself, but I didn't recognize it in myself at the time. Right um so what do you mean by dysfunctional behaviors um well i mean it can be you know you just essentially in that context it's focusing on the wrong thing like it's it's being uh you know feeling um 
down, deflated, dejected, jaded, whatever it might be about someone doing something that you want to do, focusing on, um, yeah, essentially focusing on everything that isn't within your ability to control. Um, it's then, yeah, focusing on the outcomes instead of the process. Um, again, so as an athlete, as a swimmer in particular, um, the best that you can do to either achieve your goal, whether that's ultimately, you know, to make a team, to win a race or whatever it might be, the best thing you can do is to deliver the best race that you're capable of doing on that day. And to do that, you need to focus on the things that you can focus on, which is very simple. And it's actually, it's, it's a bit hard to do, um, but it requires, you know, not like you're, you're kind of like in the swimming sense, you're standing next to the people that are literally you're racing against, right? So, and they're, I don't know, one and a half meters away from you either side. So in that context, you need to keep all of your attention between your own lane lines and none of it directed to the person next to you. Um, even as the race, like before the race, as the race is about to be swum, as the race is swum. Um, and, you know, people have different race strategies. Some people, you know, kind of sprinters, they might go out hard and then have less capability in the second half of the race. And so there's, there's lots that of opportunities for you to become distracted. Um, and that's definitely one of them. So, mm -hmm. and it's kind of hard to, yeah, I mean, I think it takes, takes a lot of practice to, to do consistently and to do well. Um, and, and again, kind of tying it back to investing, it's, um, it's one of those things, I think, you know, if you can go into investing with an absolute goal and objective of what you want to achieve and not worrying about what other people say or do the way other people invest, where other people invest, what your benchmark is like, you know, it's one of those things of like a relative benchmark, all of those things are like you kind of your attention being drawn from your lane lines into the ones next to you and to these objectives that aren't relevant to you actually delivering on what your goal is. So, um, mm. yeah, I think it's, it's, um, you know, and as, as the meets kind of get bigger, this is now returning back to the sport, you know, it becomes harder and harder to do. So yeah, it's, it's, it's what determines, um, typically why someone can win and win successfully and and why someone might not quite be there um or not quite get get that result um yeah and as as the meets get bigger as the attention grows more intense it, it does get harder and that's that's definitely one of the things that Liv and I learned from 2004 at the Athens Olympics. You know, she was she went into the Olympics as the world record holder in the women's hundred meters freestyle, which is probably the the highest profile swimming event for a a female. Um, and yeah, she her attention leading up to the meet, like this was this was her first Olympic Games. Um, her attention leading up to the meet kind of drifted from what she needed to do and more towards 
um, taking on the expectations of, you know, the public, um, people close to her. It's like, well, you're the world record holder, so you, you should win, right? And it's a, it's a very different, very different beast, um, the Olympic Games. I mean, she broke the world record in the semifinals of the Olympic trials in Sydney when, you know, basically, or relatively speaking, no one was watching. Um, and then, yeah, to go into the Olympic Games as a world record holder, you know, as a, as a um, uh, kind of, yeah, as, as a first Olympic, um, first Olympian, first time Olympian um, was a different experience. So, and it was, it was tough. She ended up just um, missing the, the final. She placed um, ninth by eight one hundredths of a second. And yeah, to make it more challenging, the her her um, Australian um, teammate Jody Henry ended up winning and breaking the world record in the final. So yeah, it was you know it's one of those things that um, you kind of learn a lot from sport. Mm. It sounds like there's so many profound lessons that I'm kind of piecing together that have shaped how you invest. If we bring it back across to that, yeah. Um, so you managed to do some undergraduate study in investing in finance. When did you, when did you decide that finance or investing was where you wanted to head as opposed to focusing more intently on swimming or was it kind of the best of both worlds where you could still do your training and move across and, and, and learn how to invest better or just um, get the technical details down? Yeah. Well, you know, again, so swimming has a, you, you kind of, it's not a sport like golf that you can just keep playing and playing. So you're kind of always um, making sure that you're, you're pursuing some, some career objective. And like I said, like um, the idea of um, creating wealth was something I'd always been really intrigued by. Um, and so it was always there um and i was always progressing at i guess that in some way shape or form like university studies um through through my swimming career and it was just it was i was really fortunate to um really really fortunate where kind of as my swimming was kind of um reducing down um it was just at a really nice natural time that that I was looking to kind of grow into um, an investing uh, uh, career, and and yeah, like it was it was a there was a, a nice crossover. Like um, I was finishing my uni university studies and also um, starting to invest funds personally for for us. Um, and in in the in the stock market and um and also swimming and then kind of the swimming was was petering out and then i was like well you know i kind of like need to get a want to get a job um and i was investing but i didn't really know what i was doing while i was investing in the stock market i was probably more like a technical investor mm. so I was, um, yeah, kind of reading books about technical analysis and trying to come up with my own stuff and never really felt like I knew what I was doing because well, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, 
So I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go, you know, be a stockbroker because they know what they're doing. And so, yeah, I kind of then um, uh, joined Wilson HTM in 2007. And like I said, that was like right as my university was finishing and right toward the end of my swimming. And, and it was great because, I mean, they, they, were, they were really accommod accommodating. Um, it was a really strong market at the time. It was a really strong bull market, the end of a bull market. Um, that was just in the lead up to the GFC, right? Yep, yep, yep. So, um, yeah, so they gave me a bit more flexibility to be able to, to, to turn up a bit later. Um, and I think, they were, I don't know if they ever really noticed when I was nodding off at the back of some some presentation. <laughs> we had like, you know, some, some small mining, junior mining explorer come in and want to raise some money for some wells or holes that they want to drill somewhere, <laughs> which I found quite boring. Um, um, but it was really good to, to get that exposure. But I think probably a couple of weeks in, um, uh, yeah, I realized I wasn't going to, I was definitely not a broker. Um, I wasn't interested in broking at all. Um, I was just um, far more interested in understanding what these businesses were doing. So rather, so rather than the selling, more so focused on the analysis of the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I was there for 18 months and I think I executed two trades. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was really bad. I was going to say, you wouldn't have been the best broker. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Like I remember at the time, like the brokers around me were like they'd complain if they ever had a donut day, like you know, a day that they did nothing. Whereas, like you know, if there was a day that I did something, well, you know, that was um, that was probably of note. So, uh, <laughs> but I was really fortunate. Like during my time there, um, I befriended the senior analyst, and I was able to to spend a few weeks with him. Um, understanding what he does, uh, how he looks at companies, how he forms his opinion, how he how he takes that opinion and gives it to the brokers, and obviously the brokers go and sell it. So, and that, I found that really far far more interesting. Um, uh, but you know, I guess I had to return to the desk, so I, I was employed as a broker. Um, mm. So yeah, that was one thing I couldn't get away from. So this is obviously the height of the GFC. You've got this job for 18 months. Um, from what I can tell, that kind of ended in the GFC. Like yeah. Uh, just yeah. as things were getting pretty hairy. Really bad, yeah. Um, yeah, so it was... There were there was a few things happening there. So um, um, with the analyst that 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 I'd probably be fair to say was my mentor. Um, one of the days he used to he used to kind of walk around the floor like an like a you know wily old fox or something. Um, <laughs> one of the days he he just walked past and dropped a book on my desk, um, and it was. Um, lessons for corporate america the essays of warren buffett and i'd read like tons um about investing and i was trying to like find my own strategy um and that's likewise like as i mentioned that that's why um 
became a stockbroker. Mm. Um, but I never really feel felt like I, I knew what I was doing. And I had a book of Buffett's at home, but I never read it because I just thought he was so boring. Um, it's just, you know, obviously you buy things that are, you know, um, required or desired by consumers and then you hold on to them for as long as possible. I was like, oh, like, you know, yawn. Um, so I never actually read it. But he, when the analyst dropped this book on my desk, I like opened it up and I literally read the first paragraph and I felt like, you know, just the world made sense. Um, felt like I was finally reading words of someone that knew what they were talking about. And then I looked back at the screen and, and instead of just seeing lots of kind of meaningless arbitrary numbers, they all meant something now, um, which was, which was really nice. Um, and, and yeah, so you know, it was, it, there was that. And then, and then I went into the, the, the process of like being able to work with him for a period of time and, and research companies. Um, and I remember um, there was one company we were looking at and he, this was, yeah, this was now probably mid 2008. And the GFC was really starting to kind of shake things up and he said, well, you know, we finished, finished the work. He said, oh, I value this company X dollars. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. You would value it at 2X or 3X or something, way more than that. He said, well, I might. Well, he said, that's, that's probably very, very much the case, but I need to frame my um, research around two things. One, where I think the stock's going to be in 12 months and to what the market will be prepared to pay in this environment. And I heard those two things. I was like, what, you're kidding me? Like, seriously, like that's, that's how you actually work? Because like one, like 12 months is like way too short to understand what the merits of a business or what the, the merits of a business's operations, right? Like it's just, it's far too short. You need a much longer period of time to understand if the company is actually uh, providing value and being able to capture some of that value themselves. And, um, and then as well, like, you know, looking at something in light of what the market is prepared to pay, I was like, well, like you're forcing yourself to pay high valuations in good markets and low valuations in the market that we were in at the time. And I was like, if, if that's what you're doing, you're, you're kind of trapping yourself in to always generating effectively market returns. Um, and I heard that. I was like, you know, like I love this area, but if that's the way that the industry works, I don't want any part of it. Um, and, you know, the flip side of that is if that's the way the industry works, then there's this huge opportunity to do something that is decoupled from, from that mindset and mentality. Um, so, yeah, I kind of walked. That was now, you know, yeah, mid-2008. Um, I started thinking how I could leave Broking and set up a vehicle in which I could basically write the rules around what's important um, and what's going to shape what's important for us in terms of determining where we're going to allocate capital and how we can hold on to that capital over a long period of time to to kind of 
to give us this this kind of space from the industry to decouple from this kind of um, inertia, the way that the industry works. Um, and I knew to to truly get that independence, I had to I had to do it truly independently. Um, so I wasn't trying to um, align with any sort of institution. I, I hadn't really I hadn't spoken to anyone at that point in time that suggested, you know, people around me had a similar point of view. So yeah, I kind of just went and and worked out how to try to set up the structure myself, um, which took a full year around three, what I thought were the three core principles to remaining independent, being able to deliver value, um, you know, identify opportunities without this relative lens of looking at the world, uh, which I thought would get us to the most important thing at the end, which is our investment objective, an attractive annual, an attractive absolute after fee rate of return. Um, what were yeah. those three principles? Um, patient, like taking a patient approach. So, um, you know, wanting to identify opportunities that we can leave capital in for a long period of time. Um, uh, a perform So patience, performance and alignment were the three principles. And, you know, the performance being based off an absolute um, benchmark rather than a relative benchmark. Again, getting us out of this mindset of feeling like we have to worry about what our competitors are doing. If, at, for instance, our benchmark is 10%, so it's always been 10%. So I know like in 2010, when we started, I knew in 2010, we had to deliver more than 10%. 2011 was more than 10%. 2020, it would still be 10%. 2025, it would still be 10%. Um, and which then helps the first principle of, of patience. So, um, you know, you can look at an investment opportunity um, and just through through an absolute perspective and think, well, it doesn't really matter what I think the market's going to do over the next 12 months or 24 months. Are we kind of in a low interest rate environment? It's going to mean stocks do really well or anything like that. It's um, it's just taking, taking this, well, we just want to deliver more than 10%. So I don't know, that's what we want to do this year and that's what we want to do in 10 years' time. So if I think this company will be able to support that objective at the price that it's prevailing at this point in time based off what we know about its competitive position and you know, everything that it does, um, then let's buy it. Do you know what I mean? Rather than worrying about you know what um, John across the road is doing or what the index is going to do. So it was, it's, it's, really, it's really kind of helps that patient approach. And then the last one, alignment, um yeah that's just i mean that's just the, the foundation i think to any financial service uh or needs to be um whereby if you're acting on behalf of someone else um you need to make sure that you're exposed to not just the upside but you know the the downside um of any of your decisions um and that was obviously a thing that's massively missing with broking um mm. it's transactional um, service so you, you obviously you don't want your clients to get so upset about your investing recommendations that they leave you but there's actually not really anything with broking that rewards the broker for you know 
delivering their client um, a good um, investment. And likewise, there's nothing that really penalizes the broker if they haven't done a, a great job. And, you know, kind of at the time too, in 2008, when I looked at the um, funds management industry, you know, there was it was quite reflective of broking where there was, you know, so, so many funds that were set up seemingly prime objective to earn a management fee. Um, you know, so they know all they have to do is, you know, get some of that superannuation assets into their fund and each day they, they get out of bed, they know they're going to get paid and if they deliver performance, then great. But if they don't, well, they're still going to get paid. So I kind of looked at all that. I was like, well, that's like really uninspiring and it's completely decoupled from this kind of mentality of an athlete, which I, I really um, uh, um, aspire to. I, I really love, you know, the athlete only progresses when they deliver the performance. Um which is just so, so nice. Um, so yeah, kind of wanting to, to bring that into, into the investing. So um, yeah, it was just trying to set up a structure with those three core principles, patient mm. performance alignment. Mm. I, I've heard you say before that um, having that hard or absolute benchmark is promotes original thinking. And I feel like that's one of the essential um advantages of being a private investor is that you don't have to benchmark yourself if you don't want to. So you yeah. can you can make the best choice for whatever it is that you're aiming to do. Um, just on that alignment then, um, with the, and with the fees, how did you set that up? Are you able to say how you set that up? Um, the alignment, yeah, yeah. Like was so, it a management fee or a performance fee or yeah. like what, what, what did you think worked best at the time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just on your earlier comment about you know the 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 nice aspect of not being able to not having to benchmark yourself. I mean, that's good, but I for for me, it's important that you can still measure how mm. you know absolutely you're performing. So it's you don't want to then just go oh, well, it doesn't matter. So you still need something to to measure yourself against. Um, so that's just just kind of one of the things I'd, I'd say there. Um, and with regards to the, the fee structure, yeah, so we, I think it was a, the first four, possibly five years, um, the only fee we had was a performance fee. Um, and the performance fee was only payable, obviously, when, we, when the return was above 10% in a year. Um, and that was because, again, like I wanted to, to clearly demonstrate to our unit holders that, you know, I was managing this fund for performance. It wasn't to generate kind of just a annuity stream for myself. Um, I only wanted to get paid when I had delivered performance. It was, um, you know, that was one of the reasons why it was set at 10%. The benchmark was set at 10% because that was roughly what the, um, all ordinaries had returned for the past 25 years, including dividends at the time. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I only wanted to get paid when I delivered something over and above a kind of market return. Um, and, and that was, um, yeah, that was in place for, for a few years. But, um, yeah, it, got, it was to the point where um, I think 
we live and I were starting to to um, try to have a family, and you know all of our investments, like uh, as much as we could um, we could get our hands on, was in the fund uh, needed to be because you know I mean the fund started with eighty thousand dollars from um, five people, I think it was. Um, and so it was small and, you know, it was, it was tough too, because, um, you know, I kind of obviously wasn't earning any, 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 um, income anyway, cause there was no management fee and any performance fee that I was earning. Um, I was, well, we were, we were reinvesting the whole amount back in the fund, including GST. So actually when a performance fee was generated at the end of the year, it was this massive cash hole for us like we'd have to pay 10 percent to the ato and then we have to fund the, the full tax liability to the ato so but i just you know i was spending all my time trying to find these companies that's that was the whole point of the fund is that i actually am investing myself into these companies um using other people's money as kind of strange as that sounds um, um and so it was yeah, it was kind of tough, and we were looking to have our start a family, and so I was yeah, we we're at this point where I was like, well, I kind of need to introduce something to help keep the lights on, um, because as well, Lib's Lib's income like this was now yeah, twenty fourteen, like she retired from Sumi in twenty twelve, and uh, it was a completely different market now for kind of. Um, uh corporate engagements and it was tough um and we actually ended up selling our house in 2013 um so yeah we 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 i mean and we had this conversation i had this conversation with liv in in 2013 um it's like do we because 2013 we actually that was our best year uh i think we delivered 50 percent before performance fee um, and so, you know, we had a, we had a good performance fee that year and, and it was ended up being this massive cash outflow for us. And I was like, I'm not selling a single unit in this fund. I'm sorry, well, we got to sell the house. And so we, we decided we'd sell the house and we did, uh, it sold at auction and, um, and anyway, it was, it was a bit of a strange circumstance. The. The, the it was unconditional the 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 purchaser um paid a deposit any, anyway had they had to pull out um and so we were left with this situation of um uh now again needing income and neither of us were earning any um and so i introduced the management fee there's a long way long way to kind of get to your point introduce this management fee uh, but the way that I kind of rationalized to get back to where we were um, of only having a performance fee was to, to implement this, what I termed as a management fee rebate. So anytime a performance fee is, or over the years a management fee is paid, then that amount is rebated back against any performance fee that's accrued, right? So at the end of the at the end of the year, if a performance fee has been earned, then the management fee has simply acted as an advance on that performance fee to help keep the lights on throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And um, 
investors don't actually pay any more. And if a performance fee isn't earned, then the management fee is carried over into future years. Hmm. So one of the things that we didn't really talk too much about, Luke, was um, something that you and I spoke about about a month ago now, um, that experience during the GFC, which um, resulted in you selling the houses and then um, putting the money. And this I, this is pre, pre-blue stamp, I believe. Yeah. Can you just relive that experience? Um, and I guess how you convinced Lib to let you do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was that was at a time when I was kind of really um, digging into everything Buffett and, you know, spending time with the analysts and going, wow, this is really cool. We're investing in businesses. And, yeah, the GFC was really kind of rattling the markets and making those businesses cheaper and cheaper and by the like like each day you'd turn up they'd be a bit cheaper and it kind of just went on and on and on and on which is you'd see these kind of um yeah these businesses that you're looking at and probably admired just becoming cheaper and cheaper and um you know i was kind of investing we're investing all of our um savings at that point in time um and it just kind of kept getting worse which was just more kind of exciting to me Mm. um and we had an investment property at the at the time a a little unit and i said to them i was like you know i think we should sell this because there's like you know far more attractive things happening in the stock market so we did and that was great. That was fine. Um, but I invested those funds, I think, in about a week. Um, and it just kept falling again and, and again. And to the point where I was like, you know, this is just now. Like, I don't, I don't even know what people are doing. Um, because, like, you'd have these businesses that, you know, their operations would be probably fairly resilient um and you know might have had zero debt might have had you know meaningful cash but still you know falling and falling so yeah we kind of had the had the conversation with lib to say well how about we kind of sell our 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 home as well (laughs) Um, she was she's like she's super supportive Uh, i think that's one of the really and that's like like blue stamp is built off everything that Lib's done, um, I wholeheartedly know that. Um, it's only there because of Lib supporting it. No, I mean, through all the years. Um, and, and this kind of preceded that um, when she was, she, she kind of agreed and we, we sold the house and I invested those funds probably in about a month. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it was probably after that that I was like, well, you know, well, that's it. Like for us, like I've invested all our money. Like, like, you know, how do I keep doing this? Because the market keeps falling. So I need more funds. Um, and I wasn't interested in broking. And again, it was at the same time as, you know, this the Buffett and with the analyst. And I was like, you know, I'm reflecting on other managed funds out there. And I was like, you know, I think there's, there's an opportunity to create a fund that's decoupled from all of this, 
where I can be remunerated when I've generated performance and then I'm incentivized to work kind of hard or as hard as I absolutely can um, to generate performance because then that's how I get paid and I can use the capital of other people, which is like essentially kind of, you know, infinite um, Mm. to invest myself into these businesses that I was spending all of my time trying to identify. So I was like, well, that, that's, that's definitely a better, better um, course of action to take. And if this is how the, the market thinks about looking at companies, then like, you know, what a great opportunity this was. So um, yeah, in a really kind of selfish way, I set up the fund to use other people's money to, as as a way to leverage my own um, wealth creation um, hmm. uh, into these businesses that I was trying to own myself. So yeah, using other people's money to buy these businesses that I actually just wanted to own myself. Hmm. Um, so that was that was kind of um, roughly how it all took shape. Hmm. I, I I heard you say in the past that you effectively sold two houses and you got two businesses or two shares in return. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's probably a bit of a dent in my personality where I'm maybe a bit too intense, but um, I only want to invest in companies that I, I feel like I really know and I'm comfortable with and I understand their industry, I understand their competitive position and um, all of the ins and outs. And so it means that, I mean, that's to the exclusion of lots and lots of other opportunities. Um, and um, yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was interesting times when the whole market was falling, but I was just pouring our capital into two stocks. Um, and I don't, that just seemed natural to me. That just seemed like the way that, that, I wanted to invest, um, um, rightly or wrongly. Uh, it's obviously very concentrated. Um, we had all of our capital in two stocks during the GFC, um, but I was very confident that we were getting far more than what we were handing over, and that, that our capital was was definitely safe. And you know, it was it was also a a decision that I felt like. You know, we were making a, an investment in capitalism at the time, like s- such were the circumstances. Mm. Um, I was like, you know what, like if capitalism prevails out, out the other side of this, then these are going to be great businesses. We're, we're going to do well from our investments in these businesses. Um, and if, if capitalism doesn't prevail, then obviously, you know, our investments aren't going to be so good but there's going to be far bigger problems out there than than us not having a house to live in so mm. um yeah it was it was really an investment uh, kind of uh call on capitalism um which again sounds very dramatic in light of the current circumstances that we're in right now being um being what to be seem to be far more economically worse but the market's indicating something different Mm. This is thread that it's pretty obvious. Um, whether you probably knew it or not, when you were pursuing sport, I guess you were 
um, you were so focused on something and sometimes that can come at the exclusion of other things, right? So you kind of just set your mind to something, you focused on it. And the same thing with starting the fund and, and even that investing experience is you found something, you focused on it and you didn't look outside your lane, you know, in terms of swimming. Um, you didn't look outside your lane and you focused intently on what you wanted to achieve. Um, why don't we shift now to a bit more of kind of like the process that you follow and how you think about investing and just from a higher level. One of the quotes is on your website. It's, whilst being influenced by value investing philosophies, Blue Stamp follows a proprietary approach focused on investing in businesses that are displaying growth. Um, can you flesh that out a bit? Like, What, what do you mean by uh, proprietary, but then also why the growth focus? Like, is it just is it simple as ten percent hurdle or something else? Um, yeah, I, thanks for um, pointing that out. That's probably would have written that quite a few years ago. I don't know if I write it way now, but um, yeah, proprietary sounds a bit strange. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say there. Um, so just to just to um just to rehash your question. So it's um, uh, h- how do we look at growth and mm. what makes it proprietary? Yeah, yeah. So what? And this is, you know, this is the thing, right? We're just talking about not swimming in someone else's lane and not focusing on your your peer, focusing on what you're trying to do. So maybe the the right way to frame it is. Just literally, what are you trying to do? And then how do you go about doing that? Are you, you're not just invested in Australia, you're invested overseas. Um, one of the other quotes that you had was um, the dot, 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 the most effective mechanism to protect the value of our capital is to invest in businesses that are displaying growth. This growth will not only help defend against the many moving factors that go into any company's valuation, but it will also provide the opportunity for satisfactory returns to be achieved. I feel like I just, maybe I just answered your question. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, yeah, that, and that is, that is it really. Um, um, it's, it's kind of, um, gr- growth is important. Um, and it's something I kind of didn't appreciate earlier on in my career, investing career. Um, I was looking looking very much more for cheap stocks, um, kind of cigar butt type things, but not, you know, we did some arbitrage transactions early on, but still, you know, with, with the lens of wanting to allocate money for long periods of time, so I was still looking at kind of cheap companies um, particularly coming out of the GFC, um, where, mm. where most things were cheap. And that really informed a lot of my thinking early on in kind of blue stamp years um, is just trying to find cheap companies, low PE, multiples, um, all those types of things. But um, I kind of reflected that or realized that most of those companies um, they weren't growing right so you might get some one-time uplift um, when the market realizes maybe they've just 
priced that stream of earnings too low. But it's, yeah, the company's not really going to make you wealthy over a long period of time. You have to then find something else to recycle that capital into, mm. um, uh, which is hard. Like that, you know, that. So if you're kind of looking for those like one time lifts, um, uplifts, then, you know, there's a lot more work in that. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just harder to do and it's harder to do as, as the fund gets bigger. Um, whereas if you can find a company that through whatever it does um, is growing and it has quite a runway ahead of it to keep growing, well, that's going to make, this is kind of my thought process, that's going to make my job so much easier because I only have to find one of them once. Um, and then I can just leave the funds with with that company, provided you know at that point in time we're kind of happy to invest at the price. Um, but parking that, it's like that 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 price consideration. It's like wow, that's going to make my job so much more manageable. Not only like will it make the number of new ideas I have to come up with each year way less, it also means that you know, I could probably manage a lot more money than than what we were at that point in time um so there was kind of that that aspect to it that that's why i think kind of a reason why i think growth is important but you know as well um for a company that's not growing their earnings or their earnings are in decline um it's actually quite risky i think um in a way if you're investing over a long period of time in that company because you have to be a lot more confident, probably a lot more precise with its valuation to get an appropriate rate of return on, on that opportunity. Um, because if you get a little bit wrong, there's no buffer. Um, you can't wait another year for earnings to catch up, um, you know, at the expense of, you know, your average annual rate of return. You can't like things are just getting harder and harder and worse and worse, like for a company in decline. Um, so that that introduces a lot of risk. That's not even to mention the whole aspect of, you know, getting scalable returns, needing to deploy more capital, not trying to reduce transaction costs, friction costs. Um, so if, if, but if you're part of a, a, a invested in, a, in this company, in this boat that is sitting on a tide that's going up, um, then that's just, all else being equal, just going to make your job easier. Um, and evaluation is always important, but there is just more buffer. There's more of a margin of safety in a company that's growing than in a company that's not growing. Um, if more sins can be hidden, it's as terrible as that sounds, um, in a company that's growing their earnings. Um, and there's more differentiation that you can add. So the market taking a 12-month perspective, maybe 18 months, um, very, very hard for someone with that mindset to look at a company that has really long-term structural growth opportunities ahead of it in you know meaningfully large markets to put a valuation on 
a company that justifies that opportunity in the outer years, in year three, four, five, 10, 15, almost impossible. So if you have this ability as an investor to think long-term like that by virtue of consistency with those people that have given you the money, so as in it's, it's all well and good if I were to think like that, but if my investors don't bring that same mentality to the table, if they want the 12-month return, if you don't get it, then they're pulling their funds, well, it's going to come to naught, right? But if you as an investor, as a manager, have been able to cultivate investors that have a consistent mindset to your own and your mindset is longer term, well, then, man, you're going to go into this um, knife fight with a machine gun um, and you can do some some things that, that other people just don't have the capacity to do either because it's not reflected by their investors or because their benchmark is is something that chops their um, horizon down into a shorter period of time. Um, so yeah, if you if you if you have that that capability, you can look at these growth companies and you can invest for year five, for year 10, confident that you're going to get um the value which which you think and it might be a little bit you know different either side of it um but roughly you know you're you're right like better to be roughly right than precisely wrong that that's kind of the the general idea better to be roughly right about a growing company than a precisely wrong um idea about a company in decline um again we're not trying to pin the tail on the donkey we're just trying to say that's a donkey and that's a stallion. Let's go and invest in that company. Hmm. Again, at, at, a, at a price we feel like we will um, be able to, to generate a decent rate of return on. So, um, I mean, that's, that's kind of roughly the idea around why we invest in um, companies that are growing. Um, hmm. uh, yeah. How many positions do you typically hold so not just any point in time what do you is there any hard number you're trying to you think is manageable or is it more just opportunity costs and weighing it that way um yeah it's not like it's not something that i I bring and say we we're going to hold this this number um Mm. uh there is no there is no kind of defined parameters around that um, but you probably could imagine it's concentrated. So I think the, the most that we've ever held is 10 um, over the years. And what would we roughly hold? Um, I think probably on average seven, but that's concentrated into the top few, um, which again is just consistent with the way that I seem to be wanting to invest um mm. I, I, it's not it's not a mental it's not a conscious decision to say i want to invest in this few number stocks um yeah. i would i would prefer i would love to invest in 20 30 40 if i felt like we were going to get an equivalent return um but i, I you know there's no way that i could cover that many number of stocks 
um, to the level that I would feel comfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just been a, a bit of a product of, yeah, that that kind of um, bit of intense focus on things that's naturally caused us to have a concentrated portfolio. Mm. Do you, so then I imagine to your earlier point that you don't turn over the positions all that often. I imagine, you, you know, you're measuring things in multiple years, not months like some investors do, yeah. regrettably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, one thing, I, I went back through your letters, which uh, I think for anyone that reads them from our listener base, I think they'll probably hold them in, or at least I do, in, uh, I can't give away my top three, Luke, but I can give away my top five in Australia and you're definitely in it. Um, and I went back and I read 2011. And um, obviously this was the time when uh, there was a lot of the European debt crisis and all that was in full effect. Um, and I just wanted to pick your brain a bit on macroeconomic thinking. Um, and one of the things you say, even with all of this in mind, I'm incredibly bullish on equities. Why? Even if the US, Europe and Japan default and China makes a mess of their economy, there will still be 6.9 billion odd people living on the planet who still need to consume goods and services in order to go about their daily lives. And for now, capitalism still remains the best mechanism to facilitate the exchange of those goods and services. I've got to say that when I read that, um, this is probably something that only came across into my consciousness probably two or three years ago. and the, the value creation that comes from owning businesses as opposed to almost anything else. Um, if capitalism is in place, then it almost seems certain that businesses will be the, the source of most wealth creation. Broadly, would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And so whenever, so do you let the macro economy or the economy in general inform your view or is it strictly bottom up in your appraisal of companies? Yeah, it's it's strictly bottom up, um, but the, I guess the top down creates opportunities, right? So it's when the macro changes that you know stock prices changes change. But if you can maintain a, a strict adherence to bottom up um, amidst volatility or you know panic, um, you'll you'll do well. Um, yeah. Mm. There are just a couple of other quotes that I, I pulled out of your letters over the years. Um, I, in, one, in 2013, this is when you fund, from my memory, made about 50% in one year. Um, you were talking about central banks in 2013 taking the action to raise debt ceilings, all that sort of stuff. Um, and you're saying, undoubtedly, the, the extreme actions which have been undertaken by the major central banks around the world have influenced the financial markets and in turn the trust results, although by how much I could not say. And this is the important bit you say. The only tool I have at my disposal to understand the reasonableness of any price movement is by referencing that price to the underlying worth of a business. I am comfortable with where the trust businesses are being priced at this point in time. I am aware that during the half-year communication, I expressed concern at the degree to which the prices had moved and I may appear to be contradicting myself. And this is the but the question that I have for you, you say, I'm also acutely cognizant of the trap of talking yourself into the game. That is when you can no longer justify the prices being paid of simply sitting out. You change your assumptions and shift the goalposts so that things look cheap again. And Viola, you're back in the game. 
This highlights to me one of the silent killers in finance, one's own self. How do you, how do you not fool yourself um, into, I guess, that what I might call thesis creep? Or how do you, what are some of the mental reminders, you know, like, if you're like, that you, you need to play on yourself to avoid that type of thinking? Yeah. Um, I think not like, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but having, having a, a benchmark that, that helps you keep space from, from, um, having a, a relative mindset is important. So again, if, if you're getting measured off a subset of the index, then typically the index on average is taking a, a multiple over, you know, the basket of stocks. Um, you know, if, if, if by virtue of central bank policies or government actions, you know, interest rates are dropping and that multiple is getting higher, then it's going to be hard for you to, harder for you to, to not kind of tweak things in, in your own assumptions to just make something cheaper. If you're prepared to just pay a higher multiple or you'll accept a lower rate of return, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, that's harder for you to do if, if, you're, if you've got an index that you're getting measured against. Uh, and that that kind of what that's what forces people out to to kind of play um, in some way, uh, and and then and then kind of outside of that, it's 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 tough. Like it's 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 a good question, um, and I think I should probably read some of my earlier letters again. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's comes back to how clear and disciplined the actual investor is, um, how much they can reflect on their own behaviors. Like in the end, if you're the one, like you have to be the, be your own, you know, kind of watchdog policeman to say, yeah, you know, I think they can do a bit better now. Um, you know, I'm going to bump up what I think their revenue is going to be. I'm going to, um, reduce what what rate of return I need or otherwise increase the multiple you have to be the one that that understands that understands what you're doing you're increasing the risk that you're exposing your investors to because you're assuming the company is going to otherwise do better than what you previously thought and you know what that might be legitimate you might have done more research that suggests this company has a bigger opportunity than you previously thought and that could be a very justifiable accurate thing for you to do um uh, but likewise it that might not you might be just changing things to keep up with what the stock price is doing which is you know can be quite likely over a period of time very bad um so i think it kind of comes back to the discipline of the investor can they reflect on their own actions have they learned to reflect on their own actions to see what dysfunction might creep into their thinking to keep them in the game um mm -hmm. It's, it's hard like you know i think investing is an incredibly individual pursuit 
as much as it doesn't seem like it, like everyone needs, like, you know, you go to talk to a big institution, it's like, where's your investment committee and show me all of these people that, you know, help inform the investment decisions. And it's like, you know what, like when it comes down to it, someone's got to make a decision and someone's got to own that decision and someone's got to, you know, reflect on why they're making that decision. Mm. And when you get some disconnect between all of those things, who's making the decision, the consequences to that person for the decision, then yet yet poor outcomes. Um, mm. And, you know, what might be right for me, this is now kind of even between two individual investors, what might be right for me might not be great for you. Um, you might be seeking a return that's different from mine over a horizon that's different from mine. So we could look at the same company and we could have the exact same um, perspective on what this company will do in the future. You know, it's here, it's like it's at this point today and we, we I'll try to do it in this one, we, we think it's going to be, we both have the exact same idea of where we think it's going to be in the future. Mm which implicitly, right, let's assume we've got kind of the same um, um, idea of, of future multiples, all that type of thing. Like we could, I could look at that and say, you know, I'm going to invest in that. And you could look at that and say, you know, I'm not going to invest in that because that just doesn't yield the profile that I'm trying to generate for my investors. So um, even, even two known um factors or two known variables can still yield two different people, two different decisions. So, uh, and then that's not to introduce all of the kind of um, subjectivity and uncertainty of the real world, like, you know, um, so I think it, investing is in like, a, just to try to wrap that up for you, investing is really an individual, individualistic pursuit and it comes down to the individual to understand are they being honest with themselves when they make this investment decision is it genuinely the opportunity that they think it is based off their um absolute objectives for their own investors mm. um i've never seen a good investment team make decisions by committee yeah I've never seen that. Um, one last question then, Luke. Um, everyone says that they are, you know, an independent thinker and what have you. And, um, you know, to an extent, we do have to leverage insights from others to improve ourselves and to learn the ropes, so to speak. What do you spend most of your time reading, listening to and and watching and just consuming what what type of information do you spend more of your time think they're thinking about is it you know not not necessarily in your nine to five so to speak but outside of work hours yeah what intrigues you people people intrigue me um people mm. fascinate me um just what the way people live the way they shape their lives um what's important to them um what gets a reaction from them? Why do they react that way? Um, you know, a lot of people seem to be in a uh, living, they live in a way that is 
reactive. You know, they they, they just keep the whole the way the world works, right? We're just bombarded every single day with stimulus and challenges and there's not too much in the world that is put there to make your day better or to make your life easier. And that's the whole like um you know, kind of bit philosophical, but we're not put on the planet to have a good time. Um it's no one's birthright to have a good time, just like it's no one's birthright to to be poorly treated. Um but you know, we're all here and we all live in this world that constantly challenges us every single day. Um, that's that's the way the world works. Um, um, you know, that's that's the idea of competition, that's that's the way kind of new things come through. Um if if it wasn't, then you know, we wouldn't get this kind of continual improvement and advancement in society economies everything um you know but but it's it's daunting and it's kind of overwhelming and and people respond to that in different different ways um and i guess if you're trying to look at investing companies that um serve people um then you need to kind of understand how people respond and and the way people will react and probably more fundamentally to understand yourself, um, the way that you respond and you react to different things. Um, and that, that helps me. I, like, I feel like I'm, um, a better try, try to be better. You know, I've got three young girls. Um, I've got a wife and I try to do everything that I can for them with, you know the limitations that i've got um and it's professionally a kind of a similar approach um with the the tools that i've got i try to to deliver the investors the best outcome that they've got um but yeah to to kind of achieve those two things to be a good husband father and investor i think you need to kind of reflect on on yourself and and kind of why you do things or why you don't do things, why what interests you or doesn't interest you, and kind of, um, all those types of things, and it, then it kind of naturally for me it kind of makes me look out and try to understand why people do things and why they don't do things. Um, yeah, so I kind of I, I like to read read books that help inform that, um, just help open my perspective up um to understand the world how the world works why the world works like to look up and go well you know it's not just about going to the office monday to friday nine to five it's like well we're doing this for a reason and why are we doing this and you know what's the what's the bigger bigger thing here you don't want to kind of just get to the end of your life and be like oh well you know that was fun i kind of worked for 40 years and for what you know um so try to really reflect on those types of questions to make sure that i'm i'm doing things that i really believe in and we're investing companies investing in companies that i feel like are going to you know add positively contribute to society uh in some way shape or form um yeah of course you know you'd imagine you would hope i would hope at the end of the day that you can look back and go all right added some value to the world it might be um um you know 
as in anything, any way that that value may accrue. And we all have different ways that we can do that. Um, you know, some people might be artistic, which is just so cool. It's something that I'm um, artistically challenged. I, I couldn't strum a guitar to save my life, um, but some people can do that. And that's just, I think, you know, it's so inspiring. Um, some people can sing, some people can write books. Some people can just sit with another person and make them feel better. Um, you know, it's it's really nice to see different ways that people contribute to the world. And um, if I if I can kind of also contribute in some way, then then I'd be you know really really happy. Mm. Is there any one that you draw inspiration from? Um, well, I mean, I've I've read books by Eckhart. Tolle, um, mm -hmm. or Eckhart Tolle, sorry, um, and I, I find his work to be quite profound. Um, I, I feel like he kind of cuts through a lot, um, mm. which is and delivers a at the core of it a really clear um, perspective on on life. Uh, like I, I love. Um, reading any books that I, I, I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment called um, My Stroke of Insight, which is about a lady who has a has a massive stroke over the left part of her brain, and it kind of just wipes all analytical ability um, for her to like analytical reasoning, um, and she's just kind of this being floating in the world, just kind of absorbing, interpreting the world purely from her right brain, um, which is just so incredible to understand someone's perspective, how it can change so dramatically when the kind of circuitry in us changes. There's, there's actually nothing different to the world um, but the way that she's perceiving the world, um, which I find really fascinating. Then, you know, other things like in terms of the, the functioning of, how things work um you know um, brian cox is a physicist who just delivers these beautifully digestible forms of um kind of entertainment and information about how the world is put together and how it works and it's just it's just really really fascinating so mm -hmm. you know i think um we're kind of it's it's exciting you never really know and, and daunting kind of what's going to happen each day just generally and then let alone when you wake up in the morning and have a look at what the u.s might have done overnight um you know so there's there's kind of the world is constantly in motion and just kind of sitting back and reflecting on that motion is really exciting to watch mm. yeah um you mentioned a lot of names there that are people that um i have a lot of time for when i'm thinking yeah um I is it's one thing that I often do is I often look up at the stars at night and I think, you know, if, if I'm here being an investor um, and my role is, you know, the galaxy is how many of the universe is so many billions of years old and here I am um, with this speck on the speck of dust for a little bit of time, mm. what do I want to stand for when I look back over the next 50 or 100 years? And if that, if my little patch of dirt sees me invest better and help other people invest better, then that's what's important to me. Yeah. And 
um, I use that as both an, an exercise to remind me to to do better, but also to to remind me that um, what we're doing is important, and when we're given the opportunity to do better, we do it. Um, Mate, I'm, I'm just conscious of time, so I might wrap it up just then. Um, maybe just one more point that I tend to ask everyone. I didn't have it on our, my list of questions to kind of put to you. Is just um, if you could if you could go back in time and give your, your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be? It can be investing advice. Can be um, anything. Uh, probably. Probably say just relax. Um, no, just enjoy the ride. Um, it's 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 interesting. It's kind of life investing is this kind of outward and inward kind of pursuit. I think. Um, well, that's where I kind of I live it. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the way that we live and the way that we're taught is like constantly pushing out, um, trying to do stuff, achieve stuff, um, and we're not often taught how to just slow down, stop, step out, um, and reflect you know like what you were just saying um and i learned kind of the hard way um through challenges and and being basically having life shake you and go you know um something's not working uh, you know you make errors or whatever it might be you're unhappy um and, you know, it wasn't until kind of, you know, life kind of really shook me that I was like started to really kind of reflect back and, you know, kind of when you reflect back in, then you start to actually look out in a different way. Um, and so, yeah, if I could teach, say something to my younger self, it would be kind of just to, to relax and um, enjoy the ride and not kind of get too caught up in trying to, do stuff and push things out all the time. It's hmm. great advice, man. Um, well, Luke, uh, I like it. Thank you. Luke, thanks for taking the time to join me on the show, man. No problem. I really appreciate the chance to chat, Owen, and and um, yeah, happy to, to contribute in any way, shape or form. Well, I hope we can uh, do it again sometime. Definitely. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. 
designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.